Welcome to the Finding Gravitas podcast, brought to you by Gravitas Detroit. Looking to become a more authentic leader? Finding Gravitas is the podcast for you. Gravitas is the ultimate leadership quality that draws people in. It's an irresistible force encompassing all the traits of authentic leadership. Join your podcast host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate, rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales, entrepreneur, leadership coach, keynote speaker, one of the top 100 leading women in the automotive industry, as she interviews some of the finest leadership minds in the quest for gravitas. Hello, Finding Gravitas audience. Today, I have a special guest on the show. Most of my guests are senior level leaders who are known to be authentic leaders and they share with us their stories and how they practice authentic leadership every day. From time to time, I like to bring on the show a subject matter expert who goes deeper into one specific area of leadership. For example, we've had Kathy Mott talking to us about emotional intelligence, Dr. Steve Taubman, the mindset expert. Today, you're going to meet the change leadership guru. Yep, that's a title I'm giving him because I believe that's exactly what he is. You're going to meet Jesse Jacoby, and I believe that now is the perfect time for us to listen to what Jesse has to say. We're all navigating this return to the office, trying to figure out how to lead through this process, how to lead the hybrid team. There's a lot of change. Jesse is going to share with us his insights from his experience to help us make that happen. Jesse Jacoby, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jan. It's great to be here. You are on today as a subject matter expert, and you are indeed an authentic leader in your own right, and we're going to hear your story. But I want to share with the audience how you and I met. Several months ago, my good friend, Phil Ideson from The Art of Procurement, had curated a rather spectacular webinar. And Phil has this unique ability to find great people, great subject matter experts that can indeed contribute to his audience. And I had the pleasure of being the MC for the event. And I received Jesse's slides ahead of the event. And I was so excited, I couldn't wait to talk to him. The slides about inspire to action with a brain on one side that said, analyze, think, act, and then a heart on the other that said, see, feel, act, and then a structure around change leadership. I was beyond excited. I couldn't wait to meet him. And what I love about Jesse is that he really gets it. He knows the people side to change leadership. Why things go wrong? And more importantly, what you need to do to make sure they don't go wrong. And I couldn't think of a better time to have you on the show right now, Jesse, at this time when we're coming to the end of the pandemic and we're all thinking about returning to work. Uh, change leadership is at the forefront. So this is a perfect time for you to share your wisdom, knowledge, and insights 
with our audience. Rather a long intro. So Jesse Jacoby, tell us your story and why are you qualified to be a subject matter expert on change leadership? Thanks, Jan, for that overly uh, generous introduction. Um, I wasn't always a change and transformation expert. Um, in fact, I, I came from humble roots. And if I could just step back and give you a, a quick uh, synopsis of my background, I think it would help explain. Please, right from the beginning. We make people go yeah. right from the beginning, where you were born. We want to know it all. Throw it out there. All right. I was born and raised in a small town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. You may have heard of it. I had a Huck Finn uh, type of upbringing full of mischievous adventure, and I could be found roaming the south central Pennsylvania countryside, getting into all sorts of adventures. Um, all the while, I was guided by loving parents who instilled right and wrong and fostered a strong work ethic. And that theme um, has played out through my career. Um, I had my first official job at age 12, working on a neighbor's farm during summer break from school. Over the following summers as a teenager, I worked with my grandfather in his furniture shop, which had sawdust covered floors. He was a third generation carpenter and side by side with him, I learned how to problem solve, design custom creations and interact with customers. Eventually, I went to a nearby public university because uh, it's all I could afford. It was close and, and affordable, and I was the first one in my family to go to college. While I was there, I managed the university's computer lab and taught myself website development, as this was the dawn of the World Wide Web. So I'm dating myself a little bit. After graduating with a bachelor's degree in English, I went on to get my master's in communications at the same university. And upon graduating, I moved to Baltimore, which was the nearest big city. Well, at least it was big to me, coming from a small town. There, I took a marketing job with an internet startup company, which was essentially a Facebook for the scientific research community. It's the best way to describe it. This was the late 90s. And those few years I spent at that tech startup were um, seminal in my experience and in my own career development and growth. Um, still, I was always interested, though, in the big companies and how they operated. I was curious to know about what's behind those big brands that we're all familiar with. So to scratch that itch, I decided to join Accenture since the big consulting firms provided access to those Fortune 500 type companies I was so curious about. Here, while working as a process consultant, I became very curious about how companies implement change and the related discipline of change management. So this was the spark that led me to where I am today. And it's during those early consulting days that I chose to pursue my Master's of Business Administration at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Um, it was an, an intense time uh, pursuing an MBA while also consulting and traveling a lot. I was in Midtown Manhattan working for a client when 9-11 happened, something I'll never forget. And in the wake of that tragedy, I, I was laid off from Accenture along with thousands of others. It wasn't long before I found myself back in a consulting role with Booz & Company, working again with Fortune 500 clients. And during this time, I got married, moved to Denver, Colorado, where my wife, Allison, grew up. And in 2010, after 10 plus years working for large consulting firms, I started my own consulting business, Emergent. 
which provides business transformation and change services to Fortune 500 and mid-market companies. We help them drive high-stakes business initiatives involving corporate restructuring, procurement transformation, which you mentioned, um, organizational redesign, mergers, technology deployments, process optimization, and the like. We're based out of Denver, and my team and I work with clients globally. It's been 11 fast years so far, and I've loved every minute of it. Jesse, you help a lot of clients every day with change leadership. You have a structure, you know what you're doing, you've had tremendous success. What kinds of clients do you work with? I know it's much more than supply chain, but give us a sense of uh, the types of companies that you work with and the types of change leadership that you deal with. I'd love to know that. Yeah, size-wise, we serve the Fortune 500 and large middle market companies. Um, They tend to have the most need and the most complexity when it comes to the change and transformation programs they're driving. And so we like to plopped into that fray and help them figure it out. And we're industry agnostic. So we've helped tech companies, as I mentioned, with the future of work currently. Uh, we've also worked with automotive companies, much like yourself, retail, consumer packaged goods, healthcare, manufacturing, oil and gas and transportation companies, uh, many high profile names that you would recognize. And we work cross-functionally within the organizations, but we we find ourselves most closely partnering with HR, IT, and finance leaders. I think, Jesse, you know, let's let's get right to the point here, right? There's that statistic out there that says 70% of change initiatives fail. And I've seen it time and time again in my career, where people totally underestimate the, the leadership and the people side of it, the people impact, getting the people to believe in the change. What have you seen with your career and what is the number one reason why you see change initiatives fail? All too often, clients use a haphazard approach, um, coffee chats with a few stakeholders, some rah-rah messaging from executives, sending out a few email communications. Um, Instead, a change strategy should be a part of your program's DNA. It needs to be well-planned and executed, and you need change expertise from the get-go embedded in your program team. So that implies that the people leading these big transformation programs get it and know to bring in the change management discipline early. Um, A few other common pitfalls that I think contribute to that 70% failure rate include viewing change as an event. In reality, change is a process and people move through that process at different rates. Um, Also, over-reliance on human resources. You can't outsource change management to the HR department. It needs to be led by the business with senior leaders serving as evangelists and modeling behaviors, adopting new ways of working. Um, it's especially important during times of change inside a, a company or organization. All eyes are on the leaders. And so it's a great opportunity for them to lead by example. And the other pitfall that I see often is communicating only when answers are known and only relying on communication. Um, instead of, you know, live one-on-one engagement and, um, you know, having imperfect information, that's okay. It's a journey. Sharing what you know when you know it is uncomfortable for a lot of leaders, but yet it's, it's what's needed. 
Um, and lastly, and you've alluded to it with the heart and the brain uh, presentation is appealing only to the rational, logical side of people. A good business case with quantitative data is necessary, but it's not inspiring. Really good change leaders will aim to demonstrate change in highly visible ways and inspire people at an emotional level. So you need both heart and mind appeal. See, this is where I see change leadership and authentic leadership coming together, right? A a good leader, an authentic leader will understand that, will, will be able to connect with people at a very deep level, will be able to galvanize people around the vision, will be able to tell the story, to bring the stakeholders in together, as, as well as understand the numbers and the structure and the, the, the event and the, the business side of it and the, the transactional side of it. And that's very much a part of authentic leadership. Do you see authentic leaders, do you see that leadership style, how do I say this, gaining traction in the business world today? Do you see people moving more away from command and control and just it's all about the numbers to a deeper understanding and connecting people? Uh, what's, What's your experience tell you? It really depends on the the company, the industry. A lot of times, um, and and the individual leaders. You know, some get it. Some are very good at being authentic leaders, um, and others are more classic command control, hierarchical. Right. Um, I've I see it both, and they both still exist. And there's lots of gray space in between. Um, but when I you know think of authentic leadership and what that means, you know a few things come to mind, and I love this when I see these characteristics in a leader. One is being self-aware and knowing your own knowledge, skills, abilities, as well as strengths, weaknesses, and limitations. Right, uh, that's self-awareness and uh, being able to navigate within your own personal limitations. Also not compromising your values while trying to please others. I've, I find that uh, a very authentic uh, leader characteristic. Also being able to formulate your own unique perspective um, to challenges and offering up original solutions. This is something I do to try to stay authentic. And similarly, uh, boldly presenting points of view, even when they're contrarian. In fact, sometimes that's exactly what is needed and not being afraid to be unconventional and step out of the box in terms of thinking and ideas. Mm, Yes. Well, that's a very good description of authentic leadership. And as you know, gravitas is the hallmark of authentic leadership because I say it is. (laughs) That might not be the technical definition of gravitas, but I believe that it is. So if you had to describe Gravitas, what is Gravitas to you? I think it's made up of several interesting characteristics, and I try to to exhibit these. But when I think of Gravitas, I think of being a good listener. Um, This one has always been a challenge for me personally, but it's something I continually work on. Also having empathy, uh, being able to put yourself in the shoes of others and perceiving what they're perceiving. Uh, also building personal rapport and connection. This is something that's often um, overlooked in, in business consulting and, and business transactions. But that personal relationship with a fellow colleague or consultant client 
is incredibly important as, as a foundational to getting to the next level things and work that needs to get done. Also, as, as simple as this may sound, being kind. We've all heard the golden rule, right? Um, treat others the way you want to be treated. I prefer the platinum rule. Treat others the way they want to be treated. And I also assume good intent. This is part of gravitas, assuming good intent from others. And lastly, and this may sound trite um, and unexciting, but when these attributes are brought to bear in client situations, you know, they are the intangibles that draw clients to you and repeat clients back to you. Yeah. But yes, yes. Well said. I love that. I love that definition. Jesse, many leaders out there are grappling with this idea right now of a hybrid work team, a hybrid work structure. And many of the leaders, you know, have been tasked with, okay, figure it out. What's it going to be? Is it going to be three days a week in the office, three days a week from home? What, you know, what's, what's, What's the plan? What are other people doing? What's the cookie cutter approach? What's the silver bullet? Whatever, right? What advice would you give those leaders as they grapple with this, this changing work environment, specifically ones that have been tasked with figure it out? Yeah, they were trying to figure it out, um, and and the it being a more distributed, flexible work model. They were trying to figure it out before COVID, but then COVID came along and simply forced their hand and accelerated the process of needing to figure it out. So with COVID, you know, the snow globe has been shaken, the house has been knocked down. You know, pick a metaphor, but now is the time to resettle and rebuild uh, how we work when we work and where we work in new and better ways. Um, and it's interesting, I'm working with a Silicon Valley tech company at the moment, helping them figure out their future of work strategy. And this is something most companies are struggling to solve at the moment. And the companies that have a culture of trust have a huge advantage uh, because with trust, you can then allow maximum flexibility with your employees. Flexibility meaning their autonomy to choose when, where, and how they work. That requires a lot of trust to allow your workforce to do that. Um, so the companies that have that trust already in their culture are many steps ahead of the companies who don't have a trust-based culture. But the flexibility is key uh, flexibility in the way we work, when we work, and how we work is what's going to attract talent, retain talent. And there's been a lot of research done that uh, flexibility equates to productivity. You're not doing the commute. You can easily adapt your schedule in micro increments, working around your children's school schedule, right? Or household chores. So there is a ton of productivity gain. Um, it plays to attrition. It plays to retention and attraction. And getting this balance right of putting in place the right amount of flexibility without having it turn into the Wild West and a free-for-all is the art of future of work. And there is no one size fits all. It all depends on the company's culture, needs, size, and many other factors. And so um, it's an exciting time for sure. 
but there is a lot of work to be done to get this right. Yes. I ran a webinar uh, recently called uh, Harnessing the Power of the Restart with some strategies to help people think through this and to, to work through this with their teams. And we ran a survey, a pre-webinar survey, and that and combined with conversations that I've had with colleagues and clients indicate that the number one fear right now is that leaders, senior level leaders actually want the culture to go back to the way it used to be pre-COVID. And that, to me, is a tremendous missed opportunity if we allow that to happen. I maintain that now is the time for authentic leadership to come right, uh, front and center. And if that really is the number one fear, honestly, I was, I was a bit shocked, Jesse. I, I thought that we were beyond that. I thought that the pandemic had shaken us. You know, you talk about the snow globe. I, I agree. I thought that it had shaken us to our core. I talk about the fabric of our normality has been ripped apart through the pandemic and that we were much more open. Our minds were much more open to change now than ever before. But clearly that's not the case because people, senior level leaders, not all, but wanted to go back. Maybe it's the need for safety and security to go back to the way things were. And you must have seen this behavior in many of the change transformations that you've run with clients over the years. So what would you say to leaders who are perhaps working with, either working for a CEO who's thinking that way, or to the CEO or senior leader themselves, who might be at this moment, listening to the podcast thinking, yeah, I can't wait to get everybody back in the office where I can see them and control them and go back to the way it used to be, because I felt safe. I was in control. I had my power position. We were making money. It was all good. What would you say to those people? One, much like change management, this future of work solutioning is a process. It's, it's not an event, right? This is going to take some time. It took, you know, hundreds of years to get to where we are today in terms of how we work. And to think that we can pivot so drastically in the course of a few months or a year or even a few years is foolhardy. And so this, this will take time. So ad advice point number one is recognize this is a process. Point number two is don't be afraid to experiment and try different approaches. This is not a one and done. We need to get it right, etch it in stone out of the gate. You know, position this as an opportunity for us to try out new ways of working. That's perfectly okay. Your, your employees, your organization will appreciate being part of that process of trying out new things and experimenting and learning as we go and adapting. Uh, thirdly, listen to your employees. If you are not uh, heavily engaging in surveys and focus groups, and two-way dialogue around the future of work and their preferences, um, you're missing a huge opportunity. You can triangulate the preferences of your leaders with that of your employees with what the market research is telling us. Put it all together in smart ways and figure out what will work with your own organization and your, your unique culture. 
Yeah, put it together in smart ways. I like the way you said that because that's something that you're particularly good at, right? Is putting the, a structure together around things that are usually difficult to get your your arms around. Uh, I was thinking about your slide on uh, stakeholder alignment and the impact a different parts of change during the change process. I love the way that you you do that. You can put structure to these things. But I, I think you're right and your point is well taken. This is a process. This isn't something that's, you know, it's going to be one and done and it's going to be different for everybody. And I think people are, they're just not comfortable with that, right? They're, they just, they're not comfortable with this idea that it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to say, hey, we tried this. It didn't work very well. We're going to try something different. The other fear that I have is, well, two, there's one that leaders are going to sit in a conference room and come up with a policy and, you know, have it run through about four different levels of scrutiny and say, here it is and post it on the internet and off you go, right? That's my, no, that's, that's a fear. But the other one is that if you take a large company, they're going to have uh, many different leaders in the company. You're going to have some leaders who will embrace this world of flexibility, who have a more trusting environment and trusting culture with their team. And it's it's going to work beautifully and they're going to go through trial and error and they're going to continuously improve and the, the process and it will evolve and it'll be great. And then there will be other leaders in the same company who will take whatever the policy the company comes up with and interpret it, you know, in a very strict, stringent way. And put people back in the office as often as they possibly can. And those two leaders could, could be working in the same company. I, I'm not sure I have the answer on how you deal with that other than it's up to the very senior level leadership to model the example with their own behavior and not tell people they can work from home and then have all their executive meetings face-to-face in the office every single day. So what, what do you have to say on that subject? It's a great question, and I'm seeing it play out with some of my clients. You know, these are not monolithic organizations with, you know, singular thinking across the C-suite or really any level of leadership. And so there are disparities between how leaders think about uh, future of work. Um, you could have one leader who wants to be very prescriptive. A leader of an entire function of thousands of people may want people in the office specific days of the week, X number of hours, right? And you could have another leader of an entirely different function, laissez-faire, they could be anywhere, I don't care, they could be on the moon. As long as they're productive and getting the work done, fine by me. The challenge there is that if you go forward with that approach, you create haves and have-nots, where one employee in function A looks across to their colleague in function B and sees that they have way more flexibility. And you can see where this is going. That creates incredible uh, problems in terms of retention and attraction and so forth. So it is really important to have a future of work approach that can be applied consistently across the company, equitably, fairly, and still allow leaders at certain levels to be self-directed with their teams, but not so different from function to function 
or team to team that you create the haves and have nots. Yeah. Yeah, you almost need a change leadership function, right? People that are looking out for all these things, uh, because it's it's gonna it's gonna evolve. It's going to just happen. And I think that leaders need to be aware that this kind of thing is going to happen and talk about it. And that's that's open open the communication lines. The other thing I'll add to that, Jan, is there is another pitfall that companies solving for future of work need to watch out for. And that is saying things publicly. This could be the CEO or board members or other senior leaders, you know, in the media, in the press, saying one thing, but then doing something very different internally with the employees. The employees will see that immediately and acknowledge the discrepancy and, and there's incredible uh, brand and, and reputational harm that could be done if, if they're saying one thing publicly and doing something very different internally. So it's another watch out for sure. Excellent point. Yeah, and they have to model the behavior. They have to model what they what they say the company is doing, right? You can't just say that you're going to have all this flexibility and then not have it at the executive level. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And there's uh, something that you presented, uh, a slide that I remember, and you said, you know, telling is okay, showing is better. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, it's one thing to communicate um, what's changing, right? And it's another to live, live it, demonstrate it, uh, model it. In fact, you know, when we think about leaders in charge of implementing change, you know, they need to get a few things right. Um, beyond just communications, they need to articulate a compelling vision of the future. You know, that burden is on the leader leading the change. You know, they need to paint the picture. Uh, they need to build a strong coalition um, of their, their peer leaders, not go it alone or assume everybody's aligned with them right out of the gate. So building the coalition um, laterally is very important. And leading by example. So this gets to your question directly. You know, communicating is one thing, but leading by example is so critically important. All eyes are on leaders during times of change. And so they need to be the ones modeling new behaviors. They need to be the ones who are the early adopters of new ways of working, using a new technology, uh, using a new process. So they need to they need to really lead the way with their selves. And of course, you know, being available and accessible is important. It's a great time for open door policies and free flowing two-way communication during those times of change. And and the last point I'll make there is celebrating wins along the way um, is, is critically important. Recognizing teams that are adopting new ways of working. Um, and calling them out and honoring them, harvesting those gains along the way and acknowledging those wins really helps to build momentum. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Oh, and point of clarification for my audience too, a vision is not a statement that you put on the walls on a nice little poster with your logo on it, in ev maybe in every conference room in the office that says something like, we're going to be a global world-class manufacturer of blah, 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 and create shareholder value. That's a piece of corporate bullshit. 
and is has no meaning to anybody. A vision is something that has meaning. It evokes a feeling and emotion. It's something that people really aspire to and want to get to. Just a minor point of clarification. It's a great point. Um, a vision should be tangible. Um, it should be inspiring. It should be achievable. It should be desirous, right? It has a lot of characteristics. And, and most importantly, people should see themselves in that future vision. So I, I call it the WIFM, what's in it for me? You need to articulate the future in terms of what it means for the individual. It's one thing to talk about us and we, the company, the organization, that's well and good, but you also need to direct it to the individual and make sure they're clear and can see themselves in the vision and see themselves being successful in the future vision. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, all my years in uh, purchasing and supply chain, for many years, we said, oh, we want to create a world-class purchasing organization. That's great. What the hell is that? (laughs) You know, what is it exactly? It's very, very difficult to define it, measure it, to feel it, and to know what that looks like and feels like. And then what your part, what is your part? What is the part that you have to play? How does it relate back to you, to your point? So I love blowing up all this corporate speak. I'm on a thing right now to get rid of corporate speak because I absolutely hate it. And I think that, uh, you know, the the podcast medium is is a way where people can talk like real human beings. I, I see so many emails, corporate emails. I've certainly seen them in my career. And you know you know what they're trying to say. You know what they're not saying. You can read between the lines and it's probably gone through, you know, how many different levels of of scrutiny and rewrites and edits. And then it goes out and people just scan it and they go, oh, yeah, OK, well, that's just, you know, corporate speak, blah, blah, blah. And then they delete it. And I think people need to learn to speak to each other like human beings, not like corporate robots. And that's why I love the medium of podcasting, because you get to talk to people and interact with people like real human beings. Some of the best companies I've worked with, some of my favorite clients are very human-centered, meaning they talk like humans and not corporate wonks. Um, And when we think about the human element of change, one of the things I like to do with clients, and this relates to the future vision as well, is walk through this little exercise where we say, okay, in the future state, ideally, what are our employees thinking, saying, and doing? So thinking, imagine a little thought bubble in the cartoon above their head. This is stuff that's internal to them. What are they thinking? How do we want them to think? What are they saying around the water cooler or the virtual water cooler these days to each other? What chatter is happening? And then what are they doing? What are their behaviors telling us? And if we can identify those attributes in human terms, think, say, and do in terms of what we want at the end of our change and transformation effort, we can get really practical and help to drive some of those things. I would add one more to that. I'm going to drop the F-bomb. Feeling. What are they feeling? 
I would definitely yes. add that, right? Because that gets right to the heart of it, right? What are they feeling, right? Are they feeling inspired? Are they feeling that they want to take on the world, that they are so proud to be part of this company? Because that will drive the positive behavior and impact the culture. What are they feeling at a deep, deep, deep level? Love that F-bomb. And you mentioned the P word as well, pride, yes. which if you can cultivate it and harness it, is a true differentiator in culture and can take companies to places they could have never dreamed of going. Yeah. You know, when I started my career, I started with an auto um, supplier, Borg Warner Automotive, and I started with them in Wales. And then I worked for them in uh, two different locations here in the US. And I was so proud to work for that company. I actually felt like a tingle every time I saw the logo. Really, I did. And I remember driving up to the Muncie, Indiana plant for the first time and, and such just beaming with pride and so proud of it. And I, I wish I could capture that, you know, because that's, that's what you want. You want people to feel that good about the company. And I would have done anything for that company. I would have done anything to protect them, to be the ambassador of the brand. And that's what we need. That's magical when it happens. Um, some companies stumble into it accidentally and don't know how to bottle it and maintain it. Others strive for decades to create it and still struggle to figure it out. So yes, if we could uh, distill that down into something formulaic that could be easily infused into organizational culture, uh, that would be incredible. So I'll get back to you once I've figured that out. I was going to say, you're the expert on doing this. You know how to take the, you know, the area that we used to call soft skills, which I hate that term, by the way, human skills. You're the expert at taking these things that are difficult to define and putting a structure to it. So I am challenging you, Jesse Jacoby, to put that into a structure. <laughs> Thank you, Jan. I'm flattered. And I'm, <laughs> I'm wise enough at, at my age to know that... I know uh, less than what I don't know. So um, I have so much more to learn and do and grow. And it's something that um, is important to me is my own personal development. So yes, I will, I will strive to figure that out and get back to you. <laughs> okay, great. So let's talk about uh, your, your, your career. We've talked about your career, your experiences, but what advice would you give to your 25-year-old self. If you were talking to 25-year-old Jesse Jacoby, what would you tell him? Take risks. You'll likely never regret taking a risk, but you are likely to regret not taking a risk. And don't be afraid to fail. Um, what you'll learn through failure is invaluable and often way more valuable than success. Doesn't always feel good, at the time, the failure is happening, but in hindsight and retrospect, it really drives growth. And lastly, we're all human. Uh, don't be intimidated by the status of others. Um, everyone has insecurities and struggles. So approach people with respect and kindness and realize we're all on this floating marble together. And, and don't be intimidated by people. Speak your mind, be bold, you know, be unabashed. Yes, yes. I like that. I like that a lot. 
This fear of failure, Jesse, I mean, you must see it in your business time and time again, right? And that's what people are concerned with right now as they navigate this journey back to the office. Is this, what if, what if we get it wrong, right? But you said it earlier, it's okay. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to get it wrong. Just be transparent, open up the, the reasons that the communication and talk about the reasons why you're doing or not doing certain things, get a feedback loop going and then change it. You know, if you make a misstep, change it. When you take on a client, I would have to imagine, you know, knowing the culture that you're going into is pretty important, right? And if you cover such a wide range of industries and products, how do you, how do you get a take on their culture? How how do you get the pulse of their culture? Is that difficult to do? There's publicly available knowledge. Um, So we try to do a scan and get some intel that way. But one of the first conversations out of the gate with a new client uh, or a new client engagement or even a new function within an existing client, because they can be different from function to function. They can have their own unique cultures or microcultures, as I like to call them. And so, yes, understanding that out of the gate is pretty important. And it usually happens through like I said, scanning, but also conversations with representatives from those companies in those functions specifically. So let's take a turn to the more personal side of things. I always love to know how people start their days and you know, how, how do you set your day up for success? As you know, I run an accountability lab in the mornings and we make commitments for our day and we declare our mindset and then we use the power of positive peer pressure to drive accountability, right? But for you personally, how do you start your day? How do you hold yourself accountable? Well, how do I start my day? Uh, with coffee, of course, Jan. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Uh, no, seriously, um, my day often starts by taking stock of the day's schedule Uh, moving and reprioritizing activities if needed. Um, So confession, I manage my life using Outlook Calendar. So it's easy for me to slide activities around and fine-tune my schedule for the day. Um, Each day, my goal is to have the right balance of meetings, heads down, work times such as content creation, project and task management type stuff, and personal time, including exercise and, and family activities. This is all commingled on my Outlook calendar. So essentially, my days begin with me organizing and optimizing my schedule, which enables me to work effectively throughout that day and, and know that I'm using my time most wisely. Yeah, I'm an Outlook calendar person too. Okay, good. Well, I would love to thank you for your time today and sharing your insights. And if our audience want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to reach you? You can find me at my website, emergentconsultants.com. From there, you can connect with me personally. Okay, great. And I'll drop a link in the show notes as well. Yeah. And and I want to thank you for having me on your Finding Gravitas podcast. And uh, it's been a wonderful privilege and opportunity to connect with you here. And thank you so much. Well, thank you, Jesse Jacoby. He is indeed the change leadership guru.
If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you found something of value that will help you on your quest for your gravitas, then please share with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. Visit us at gravitasdetroit.com to find out more.